Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope some ladies are actually watching. This is the Wax Cast with your host, Gavin Wax. Today is episode six, day three, and we are joined by a good friend of mine, a Florida man, an assistant editor at the Mises Institute and the newly minted vice chair of the Bay County GOP. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tho Bishop. Tho, thank you for joining. Uh, well, it is great to, uh, to join you, uh, the, the now infamous Gavin Wax. A, uh, <sighs> Guys, guys are doing uh, great stuff up there. Hopefully uh, not too infamous. I don't want to end up in a gulag, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that as well. But I wanted to bring you on because you're a, uh, a great political and economic thinker. I'm a big fan of the Mises Institute, the work that you guys do there. So I want to touch on a bit about the overlaps with Austrian economics, politics, formerly maybe more libertarian politics, maybe now more paleo-conservative, paleo-libertarian, maybe even paleo-populist. We can get into all of that and more. Um, but let's start off with uh, the state of the Mises Institute now. How is everything going? You're one of the few organizations uh, that, you know, formerly may have described themselves as libertarian that I still hold a lot of respect for. Uh, you don't seem to have drifted into the Lawbergism of many other institutions, which have just basically embraced social liberalism and Coke-funded money and, uh, you know, globalism as their new mantras. I mean, what's going on over there at Mises? Yeah, well, I, but this 2020 was really one of our biggest years ever, I think. I mean, one of the things that we're particularly proud of is that in spite of everything that's gone on, uh, you know, the entire year we kept holding you know, events in person. We even were able to do our Mises University program, which you know, historically we, we typically have about 150 students from all around the world that come in. Um, this year is smaller. You know, we have fewer faculty, but still we were able to pull it off. And I, I think one of the cool things about the Institute is that we've always kind of in our DNA – um, it's been the resistance to empire and also the understanding that we have to build our own institutions. Um, you know, so we've got to been fighting a lot of these battles that the right is now you know, fully recognizing for you going back since you were found in the eighties. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's really exciting that a lot of this stuff is coming into exactly where, where we've always been. And, and so, you know, we can, Sorry, but I'm in New York City, and we get some weird sounds every now and then. That's that's okay, as long as no alligators start to break in here, we're going to get on my end. But um, but again, you know, we, we know that you know, we, we are, we're seeing the consequences play out in blue cities around the country when you allowed the enemies to educate your kids. And the Mises Institute's always been against it. You know, Mises University, it's it's a program explicitly designed to kind of cram in a week, you know, what you'd get in four years, um, you know, so, so you learn real economics, real history. Um, so that's the sort of stuff that we've been trying to focus on. And, you know, we've I've been doing a video series, Economics for Beginners, um, you know, trying to help, you know, if you understand economics, a lot of the arguments from the left go away. Um, you know, we've been publishing books. Uh, we've been, been our, our traffic, you know, our traffic's the highest it's ever been. And again, we, you know, we understand, I think, perhaps more than most of the other libertarian organizations out there, that the danger to civilization is the left. And, and again, Louis von Mises understood that as, as well as anyone. Murray Rothbard understood, as, uh, understood that as well as anyone. Well, that's who I want to bring up yeah. next. I want to bring yeah. up Murray Rothbard, who was an alumni of the New York Young Republican yes. Club, funny enough. Um, you and, and others at the Mises Institute have not shied away from politics. In your introduction, I mm -hmm. said that you are now a vice chair of your local GOP party, uh, which I always found admirable because I view, you know, in all of the above approach, I don't think it should just be solely academic. It shouldn't just be solely within media. You should also engage in politics. And I came into politics uh, with Ron Paul, like many others. I think that's how I found you. And he also took that approach, also embracing the political side of things, not the end all be all, but part of uh, the many different pillars to fight the growing encroachment of the left and uh, all this cultural insanity. Rothbard uh, was a similar believer in that, if I remember correctly. And he actually kind of devised a sort of strategy mm -hmm. that appealed to sort of maybe this conservative, populist, rural, kind of uh, working class Buchananite base uh, that kind of dominated maybe the South and the Midwest. And that's sort of a similar demographic that Trump draws on from now for his political movement. Do you think Rothbard kind of saw into the future in that sense? And do you think uh, Austrian economics could uh, tie itself into this growing populist movement that I ascribe to? I think so. And again, if you look at the 90s, for one, to, in order to understand where Rothbard was in the 90s, you have to understand how he got them in the first place. And he started off as a member of the old right. Again, he, again a, a proud uh, New York City young Republican. Um, <laughs> the problem is, is that kind of in the peak of the Cold World era, you had like in the rise of the Buckley rights, right? You know, you, you had the, the National Review. 
and, and within this era, you had a lot of these institutions trying to purge out, you know, the anti-war side of the right. You know, they were trying to create this, this very respectable sort of conservative politics, which, of course, lost every major battle in the 20th century. And then you had, you know, he tried, he tried to do an alliance with the, with the left because, you know, they were trying to push back against the American empire in Vietnam and things like that. And then he realized that he's a bunch of crazy people. So he moved on. He tried to go with the third way kind of libertarian approach. You know, he was one of the founders of the Libertarian Party, all of that. And then he realized that the people that were attracted to the Libertarian Party were a bunch of wackos. You know, it, it was people that were more concerned about, uh, you know, drug use and, you know, you know having, tr- you know, polyamory than it was. The proto-Lulberg. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, and it goes back to like when, when Ron Paul tried to run for the LP, you know, he had like a serious, you know, here he, he was a congressman, a great fundraiser, et cetera. And he was, had a serious in-person or in-party challenge by like a Native American rights activist because you had a lot of the LP members thought, well, like Ron Paul's too square to represent right. us. You know, they, right. it, they, they prided themselves on their, you know, alternative lifestyles mattered more to like property rights, right? Right. And so Rothbard, yeah, after that and a few other little things, he said, well, screw these guys. Then he, then after the Pat Buchanan uh, uh, movement, he's like, well, here's where I feel most comfortable because what, what we have to do as libertarians or, or people that, that, that are, are interested in liberty and restoring the old republic, you know, pushing back against the empire, we have to make our message relevant to the middle class, to the working class. And, and so that is what he wanted that in the nineties, that's what his strategy with him and Lou Rockwell was focused on is how do we make these radical ideas, uh, given what the 20th century had created, right? This 20th century made our ideas radical. Um, how do we make them applicable to Hank Hills, right? Yeah, but that just want to grill. And yeah. I think that, and, and now we're living in an age where we're seeing all of these globalist institutions, you know, particularly at that post cold war era, you know, where it was this, this, you know, intended march to these you know, multinational organizations, hostile to nationalism in the first place. I mean, for example, the New York Times, mm-hmm. back in the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know, they were out there saying, oh, well, we have to keep the political, you know, territory of the, of the Soviet Union together. They were hostile to the nationalism that actually helped break apart. This right, the evil. And, like, and, and, and it's like, you know, once you start realizing that, like, that, that there's nothing worse than that, right? I mean, yeah. the Soviet Union was, I mean, like, that, that the is, evil that, empire. It was. It was truly an evil empire, and I guess the New York Times has never been on the right side of history for yeah. most things. Going back to the Civil War, etc. They've always seemed to be. Uh, well, that's another discussion. I want to talk to <laughs> Thomas DiLorenzo here, but um, but they had their own reasons. Um, but th- that's that's definitely interesting, and it, and it's great to see that the Mises Institute has definitely stayed ahead of the curve, so to speak. Now, is it true that you and maybe some others at the institute have sort of dropped the libertarian term? I mean, I used to describe myself as kind of a conservative libertarian and a conservatarian. I mean, I was always conservative. I was always pro-life. I always held certain views about national sovereignty and stuff like that, Um, even though I was, you know, more open to maybe some economic issues that were much more uh, free right, uh, not sorry, more free market. Um, What do you identify yourself as politically now? I mean, have you shed that term completely or what? Uh, See, I'm I'm okay with populist. When I'm having a normal conversation with someone here, you know, and I'm trying to describe my views, I'll I'll say libertarian just because it's still a convenient word on when you're talking to certain sort of people. Um, but I, you know, what, what I, what I'm sick and tired of is, and this is, I think one of the problems that plagued the Liberty movement is that we prided ourselves kind of being in this ideological ghetto, right? <laughs> like, Oh, you're not a real libertarian became a, an, an insult. And it's like, well, no I don't true Scotsman. If, if you don't like, I mean, if, if you don't think them, I don't care. Like, right. you know, that my, my pride is not based on how libertarian I am or, or how I'm, I've seen in the libertarian community. I, I care much more about what my neighbors think about me. You know, I, I care much more about my standing in Bay County, Florida, than I do about you know, is you know, libertarian conference circuit. And the, in the problem Beltway. is, yeah, yeah and, and the problem is that you have a lot of like libertarian, you know, influential thinkers that they they obviously and, and you know, they they pine for like going back to 2012 where they were at their their peak of of peak of irrelevance. <laughs> they they could go to all you know you had you had a few major libertarian conferences a year and they could be surrounded by fans and yeah. and you know it was the peak of the. It, and they, they, so that's why they want, oh, libertarians should be fighting amongst ourselves. You know, if, if, if you think Trump's great and if you think Trump's bad, well, at least we're, you're still here on the each. It's like, no, there is, there is no value in, in libertarian homogeny. What the value comes from, you know, if libertarians on the right should be working with the right to try to get our ideas accepted on the right. right. If you're a left libertarian, God bless. I don't care. Like, you, then work on the left and try to right. get libertarian ideas on the left. The worst idea possible is this third way, which is why I, particularly like in a state like Florida, Mm-hmm. The, the Libertarian Party in Florida, I, I think, is one of the greatest threats to to to, to you know kind of politics here. Right. 
Because, I mean, if, if, for example, if you had had, uh, uh, given how close the elections were in 2018, if you'd had right. a libertarian candidate for governor, you know, I, I'm, I'm terrified that we'd be dealing with Andrew Gillum right now. Right, right. And, and in fact, I mean, I think one of the reasons why, like, the biggest threat to liberty in the state of Florida is our agricultural commissioner, Nikki Freed. Uh-huh. Now, now it, it might be, why does an agricultural commissioner matter? It's a good question. Uh, Florida, big citrus state, a lot of farm power there. Interesting. More importantly, okay. though, like, that position deals with concealed carry licenses. Okay. Now, why? Don't know. You know, doesn't matter. It does. And so what happened during that race, I guarantee you this, you know, Nikki Freed got in trouble. You know, there, there was a big scandal during the campaign because her bank account closed her campaign account because it was receiving money from marijuana interest. Hmm. And, and so I guarantee you had, you had libertarian voters out there thinking, oh, well, Nikki Freed likes mar- is, is marijuana friendly. She's an agricultural commissioner. I'm going to vote for her on this position because these seem relevant. And right. I understand that thought process. The problem is, is that now these people have empowered the person who wants to take your guns away. Right. And it's going to be the person that runs against Ron DeSantis. But they can choke of- up. But they can yeah. choke up. So yeah. it's so yeah. stupid. But yeah. that's yeah. the thing that okay if, as long as you, I can get my weed delivered to me. Like right. It, it's such juvenile thinking. They don't look at the big picture and they, they do not make great political calculations. And my big problem with the LP, it's like, look, if you want to have a multi-party system, have a multi-party system. But what we've seen now is that the left has shut down all the left of center uh, minor parties, green, etc. So they consolidated their voting base while we kept the LP on the ticket. And that kind of hurt Trump in some states. I'm not saying it would have flipped the election necessarily, but it certainly has hurt us in some areas, some races. So it's either you have all parties on the ticket or you have none of the, the minor parties. That's how I view it. I think if you just have one that just acts as a sore thumb and, you know, because they also get votes from just people who who may vote Republican. Otherwise, they're not necessarily libertarian. They just vote because they figure out oh, maybe this guy's better, but they're never better. It's always the guy in the tinfoil hat with, you know, like a, a rap sheet going back 10 years. But um, it, it, but beyond that, I mean, I also wanted to touch on maybe some of the, the changes we're seeing in the Republican Party. Many have talked about sort of the shift away from this free market idealism that kind of dominated the party since Reagan, which was also kind of an illusion of itself because it was really pro-business. Right. And I've been getting into a lot of arguments with people because I remember when I was still kind of, you know, more of a, of a rank and file, a uh, free market kind of guy, I always knew the difference between being pro-market and pro-business. And I'm getting into arguments with people all the time about Section 230, whatever it is, and they're always presenting it as a pro-business argument. I'm like, that's not even a libertarian argument because you're talking about government privileges in the case of Section 230, et cetera. But the party as a whole, uh, particularly the Republican Party is what I mean, is seems to be shifting – anti-business, but not necessarily anti-market. And things like protectionism are coming more to the uh, to, to the front of the party, but they're still against taxes, for instance, and they're still against maybe, you know, the, the, the largening of the state uh, for the most part. But do you see the way the party is shifting, the Republican Party shifting as a positive, trending more towards liberty? I mean, some things are getting worse, some things are getting better. How do you, how do you view it? The good thing is I, I think that people are seeing what they want to see kind of in the last four years because, I mean, Trump, Trump is not an ideological guy, right? He was a transactional guy. And, and what Trump was great at was taking care of the coalitions that took care of him, right? I'm, you know, I, 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 maybe Trump's you know, uh, you know, passion for the pro-life causes is, you know, genuinely comes from, from religious conversion. Or Western care. Sahara. Yeah, He's a yeah, big yeah. fan of Morocco. That's, that's and, and again, and, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, maybe that's the case. I don't. But one thing that is clear, though, is that he has gone out of his way to promote that aspect of the conservative movement because they have been extremely loyal to him, and this was a good, good situation all around. I, I think that when I mean, there was an interesting study done by it's a it's one of those think tanks with a long name, but it was kind of okay. What is the real motivating factors behind Trump voters? And and I'm sure you can always find studies differing conclusions, whatever. But I, I think you know it, it checks out that the real motivating driver was more cultural issues than economic issues, right? You know, Republicans realized that the left hates us. Yep. The, the, the right realized that our establishment politicians aren't going to stop them. They don't particularly care and hold up for us. And, and that's what, like the proto-Trump movement, I think, was really Herman Cain in 2012. Interesting. Right? Like, he was a businessman. He was, he was from outside the system, right? Like, I mean, Herman Cain was, was winning that. I've that never moment. heard that theory before. I've never heard the proto-movement was Herman Cain. That's interesting. Well, and it's because you, you, the, the Tea Party rose. There was anti-establishment. Then, and then and after once he was out, and like Mitt Romney was just able to consolidate. Right. Um, but, I, you know, so there was this kind of building backlash pre-Trump Doubting the, the the sincerity, or even necessarily the sincerity, the effectiveness of the and, and the legitimacy, right? And so, so what Trump was was a reaction to that. And and I think more than more than anything else, I don't think it's it's necessarily a pushback on like free markets or, or laissez faire, or whatever. 
I think it's a skepticism of consolidate or of consolidated power and consolidated mm. cons- uh, corporate power. Mm. And, and this is why the, the one thing that I, you know, if anybody out there that is you know considers himself a, a nationalist or like even particularly like an economic nationalist, the issue that I I, I think is the easiest way of kind of bridging this right libertarian and and economic you know nationalist sort of put is the Fed. And it's because, like, you know, there's when, when Tucker Carlson goes on about, and, and, and rightfully so, about some of the, the, the really horrible ways that, uh, you know, the financial services industry and, and, and uh, vulture capitalism and things like that have destroyed hometowns and things like that. And, and we, you know, we've had this, this narrowing out of that working class. The main driver of that isn't trade per se, though a lot of our international trade deals sucked. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mar- Murray Rothbard was managed trade, managed trade. Right. It wasn't these are not free trade managed. agreements. Yeah, you know, they, exactly. They, they, there were things built in there that quotas everything. And it's like I, I, one of the best examples of how our, our nominally you know, trade agreement or you know, financial agreements with the country screw us over was I mean, it was like 2013. The Obama administration sent a memo of understanding with China, the, the Ministry of Finance in China, that they were going to enforce their own auditing requirements while like America. And it's like, I mean, anybody familiar with Chinese accounting? Auditing, you know, yeah. No, it was total bull. And yeah. so again, here's something that was nominally, oh, well, this is about economic relations, mm-hmm. explicitly advan- giving advantage to Chinese firms at the yep. the, cons- at the the detriment of American firms. Yep. And even more perversively, it, it, it was opening up investment from Western capital into Chinese state-backed enterprises. And so you had like Western investors who are idiots, right? They're, right. they're greedy. I mean, it's the same right. people are buying into this, this, this subprime more, um, right. market bubble that are actively sub- subsidizing state uh, subsidized the, industries. They're, they're subsidizing the, the, the Uyghur concentration camps yep. in China. So. Like, yep. And so, so here's how, again, these, these, but so, so that, that has to go to, again, some of the things that are nominally, oh, trade, no. And then the other, but the other side, it's, it's the Fed. What the mm. Fed does is benefit size and power at the expense of merit. It benefits investors at the expense of savers. Right. It benefits you know, bankers at the expense of workers. And, and so what we've done is we've, ins- we've created an entire financial system that, de- that, that rewards speculation and financial interest at the expense of conservatives. You know, you know, savers. You know, risk of serve. And, again, and that is the biggest, like that's the issue. That's very and, Jacksonian. It, it harks back to the early days of the Republic with, with yeah. the, the first populist movement with Andrew Jackson, who was against the centralized yeah. banking. I mean, and Trump looks up to Jackson in many ways. Yeah. Um, and he was actually a great president and, and did that. So there is common ground that could be found with this populist mm-hmm. right and many core libertarian concepts like anti-central banking, because th- they always hold the value because even, even the most nationalist populists, at least in the United States, there's always been a federalized component mm-hmm. to it. There's always been a respect for local tradition, state support. These movements come from, say, states west. They're not coming from places that want to centralize more. They're coming from places that want to decentralize. So they could look at something like the Fed and say, no, I want I want the bank back on Main Street. I want to support small businesses, local businesses versus international businesses. So your point about the concentration of both power and wealth is 100% true. And the way I'm looking at it, I completely agree. Well, and, and the interesting thing is that the history of populism in America, because like the problem, so again, like the Mises too, we, we deal with people all around the world, right? Yeah. So you go to someone in Latin America and you talk about populism, they're terrified, understandably so, because populism in Latin America looks like Chavez, right? Fair. Right. Right. In America, though, like the tradition of populism is Jefferson, it's Jackson. Yep. It is one of my favorites, New, New York's own uh, Samuel Tilden. Yeah, you had a great post. I didn't know much about him. Oh, he again, he was a man too good for American politics. But like what, what they were, so what you had was a working class coalition that that was anti-state privilege, that recognized that it was state privilege that benefited big corporations and big business and railroad, you know, all the railroad corruptions and things like that. And so it was an anti-corruption, laissez-faire, sound money uh, uh, political movement. The Bur- and even better off, they're called the Bourbon Democrats. The Bourbon Democrats, yep, with, with, uh, with Cleveland. Yes, and so that's what we need. We need, we need Bourbon Republicans, right? We, we need people that, you know, they, that are not afraid of, of being uh, sympathetic to, to Southern interests and, and that have an appreciation for you know, real ideas. Because the problem is, is that on the right, I, I, there's a lot of fixation on like, cultural issues and you know, we, we need to restore, you know, we need, we need to restore the Judeo-Christian values of America and we need to, 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 to stand up for Western civilization, all of which are absolutely true. But you can't simply focus on the cultural side at the expense of economics because right. economics really is a science on understanding how do you allocate scarce resources when you have 
people with, with different wants and ends. Like this, yeah. this, that is an important component. And that's kind of Tucker's argument, though, because he's always been presenting that the future of the party has to be sort of this working class mm-hmm. economic coalition that, you know, in his mind, at least in the minds of people that support Tucker in terms of what he's saying, that would be willing to sacrifice some principles of the free market to advance ourselves politically. But you're pointing out that, yes, we should focus on economics to an extent. It can't just be purely a cultural movement, but we should also double down on, say, this kind of old right classical liberalism. Am I right or am I wrong in, in how I'm describing it? No, I, th- I, think, you're, yeah, that's, I think you're right. And, and the, but the, the other important thing is that like, so one of the things that I think it's, there's a caricature of, of free markets and libertarianism and things like that, that, that you know, you, you're willing to you know, sell your grandma for some extra GDP or something. And one of the things that's, that's important to understand is that civilizations, we, we, we have a desire for a sense of stability and safety. And and the things and market products like you know, can produce this insurance programs, savings, all of these yep. things are specifically designed to help the vulnerable. Because like what, what what I think the Tucker Carlson concern is, is that you have a lot of vulnerable good people being screwed over right. by modern capitalism. And he's absolutely correct. On Not that. modern capitalism, modern corporatism. corporatism. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and that's and, how and I feel. Well, and and that's what the Trump movement was. It was these disenfranchised masses who lived between New York and L.A. Who have been ignored? Who've had their communities gutted economically and spiritually? Their jobs are shipped overseas. They're they're inundated with drugs and opioids, and the families have broken. The communities have broken. The town square has been destroyed. I mean, these are people with legitimate grievances who have been complete victims of this sort of oligarchy, this globalist oligarchy, which does very much exist, where you have you know kind of this these globalist corporations who have basically dominated uh, our national policy for decades and have gutted the country. And Trump was a reaction to that, like you mentioned earlier. So there's legitimate grievances. It's just about selling the right bill of goods to fix those grievances. And is it about bigger government? Or as you say, using some imagination to see where the free market gets all these issues, if and when. And, and I think another issue on these lines, and something that I, I definitely took for granted, and I think it's, you know, as Americans, we take this for granted. But we're increasingly seeing it play out is that like if you don't have respect for the American nation, and like the, the the ideas that were unique to, I mean, really, the, the ideas were unique to the Anglosphere. Like if, when I go back yeah. and talk about you know, the Bourbon Democrats, like yeah. it was a common coalition of people in the U.S., England, and Canada yep. that were mo- that were that kind of inspired by the Ricardian know, kind of free yeah. traders. Yeah, yeah, and and so like you have to appreciate that because once you start seeing our corporation again, like when you have Google actively hostile to the liberal values that made. West, you know, of, of that Western, product, of Western civilization. You start seeing them embrace the cultural tactics of China, yeah. and, and like that's that's an issue. We, we need, and this is this is, again, we've we've incentivized these big corporations to go to China and bow down to them because they don't they don't have to bow down to our values here. Any big corporation in America has would, would much rather fly a gay pride flag than, than, than show off an American flag, right? This is they they real they, they don't see any market value on being proudly American and right. and unless you have like a, a large Trump base out there. Um, or we return to the 50s. And and the, the thing is though, it's like and here here's one of the, I think the biggest issues that are out there that that is is kind of going to make things very interesting going forward is that the, the the Chinese Communist Party really is, in my opinion, like the Soviet Union of the past. And I don't mean only that it's an evil empire, which is, I think, absolutely true. It's, it's a uniquely rogue actor in this, this regard, which is, again, doesn't justify American intervention there. But like, we need to recognize that. You can't be oblivious. You can't yeah. be oblivious to the world around you. Right. The, uh, the other side of it, though, is that um, their economy is also a giant Ponzi scheme, just like the Soviet Union was. Be- because it is communism with capitalist, with market characteristics. Mm-hmm. You, so, and so what, what you have now is that you have American companies, again, like the MBA. Well, we've ne- we were never as indebted and intertwined with the Soviet economy as well, right. China, yeah, yeah. which makes it way scarier. Yes. Way and, scarier. And, and the scales are bigger because uh, even the Soviet Union, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, it was always sort of a backwater and it lagged behind the last several decades of its existence. China, on the other hand, I mean, it is a Ponzi scheme. It is kind of built on a house of cards, both internally in terms of their stability and their economy. But they have a lot of they have a lot of leverage over us in terms of our dependence. Well, well, they they have a lot of control of the world. Like yeah, one of the best consequences of the Trump administration was a massive decrease in Chinese investment in the U.S. I mean, it, it, Trump did more to kind of separate our economic ties than, than anybody thought possible. The CCP right. was completely caught, I, I think, uh, off guard by how much of Trump was actually going to do this rhetoric. 
Right. But but so what you have now, it's like for again, I, I think the NBA because I'm I'm like sports sports economics is total total crap out there right now. But I think this kind of gets to a very interesting point. The NBA had uh, which NBA fans started realizing that the players playing for their team didn't care about them. Right. The NBA became a, a total mercenary league. It was like LeBron yeah. James can, will leave Cleveland. There's no world to the teams. It's, it, there's nothing. And so if you're an Atlanta Hawks fan and your team's terrible and your players don't care about you, then you tune out. And so yeah. NBA ratings in the U.S. have gone off a cliff. The NBA didn't care about that, though, because they saw the future of the sport it being internationally and particularly China. And so they, so, so they were allowing this, this league because they thought, oh, okay, we're going to let the best, best basketball players play together. There's going to be no loyalty. And the Chinese are going to bail us out because you have this mentality that you have a lot of greedy, stupid uh, uh, heads of, of big corporations in the U.S. that think, oh, yeah, they, they had this mindset that if, if I squ- sell one square of fabric to every person in China, I'll be a billionaire. Right. The problem is, is that when you're, tra- when, when, when you're doing that, and, and, and so the way that China attracts all of these American companies, it's not because of labor markets. It's not because of, of you know, economic advantage over the U.S. Because you know, if you want cheap labor, you don't go to China anymore because of how much right. wages, wages have risen in the last 20 years. You go to Bangladesh. You go to Vietnam. Right. You, know, you go to other countries. They go to China for access to their domestic marketplace. And, and the problem is, is that when that domestic marketplace is, again, built off of a whole bunch of debt and, and is a giant Ponzi scheme – you have all these companies that are selling out American consumers for the hope of a future that isn't there. And, and right. once that, once the realities of that starts crashing down in China and I, the, the Trump's trade deal, like I'm, I'm a free trade guy. I have no problem with, with tariffs on China, on China, because that is an issue because, because the issue there, again, it's, it's not about economies of scale. It's about bowing down to the CCP free trade of anyone except recognize when you have an, a, a rogue hostile government to our value. Right. Who's not playing fair. Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, my biggest, I mean, I love tariffs because it, it's, oh, I think it would always be more preferential to direct taxes on individuals. I mean, I would like to see a situation where individuals and small businesses in the U S had an effective tax rate of zero. And uh, we went back to what we had for most of our nation's history and what the constitution prescribed, which was essentially just a revenue tariff. And, you know, the greatest fights of old historically were like, Oh, is the tariff going to be 20 or 28%? I mean, they all had a baseline that they supported tariffs, even in the disagreements between the South and the North, it was just, you know, yeah. marginally the percentage points. I mean, I would love to return to that being the political dichotomy than what we're having now where it's, you know, completely open free trade, but raising taxes on everyone domestic. China doesn't tax anyone to the same degree and their wealth is rising through the roof and they're basically just a mercantilist state taking advantage of us. But that, the point you're making with the NBA is interesting. I mean, and many other companies are doing that. It's not just the NBA. They're abandoning yeah, the domestic. It's just an they're, easy example. Yeah, it's easy, but they're abandoning the domestic market, yeah. which is not a which is not a, a long term healthy position yeah. to be in as a nation. Am I right? Yeah, no, and that's that's the thing, and and, and that's going to where I I think that can the appreciation for nation and and you know, like and that's it's something that again early on you're know, a libertarian you know kind of early libertarianism you, you you just took this stuff for granted, and we could take it for granted because we. We're raised in we a lived in the West. nation that respects liberal ideas. Yeah. yeah. And again, and, and that's like when you talk to people from other countries and, and, and you see the appreciation that they have like that. And, and that's like, you, you know, in Europe, like, I mean, the, the areas of the, of the world that I have the most hope in right now, um, I'm, I'm not giving up in the U.S. yet. We've got, especially here in the free state of Florida. Well, you guys but, are doing amazing in Florida. I'll tell you that, like, you know, you, you, Florida is today what California was. 50, 60 years ago, yes. especially as it relates to New Yorkers. Everyone I know is fleeing there. What pisses me off, though, is a lot of people fleeing there still have like this this, this kind of like smug yeah. northern disdain for the South, northern mm-hmm. disdain for Florida, its culture, its traditions. It's like, well, if, if things were so great, then why are you fleeing there? Now, look, I'm a proud New Yorker. I love my city. I love my state. It's, it's come on hard times, but I also respect what's going on in Florida, and you guys are doing great in terms of your governor, in terms of your freedoms, in terms of your economy, and it's, it's blossoming. Hopefully, it doesn't go, hopefully, you don't go the way of California, which seems to be a cyclical nature in the U.S., this prosperity for some reason, this mass prosperity always ends up with, you know, all the confiscation of wealth and the destruction and destitution like we're seeing in California. Hopefully Florida can buck that trend. I don't know and, if you agree. Oh, I, I think that's a very interesting point. And I, th- I think it was Arthur Bloom from uh, the American conservative the other day was talking about like the need for conservatives to kind of really kind of grasp this idea of kind of, you know, large new, new form of gentrification. Right. The fear that you're, you're going to have all these blue state refugees come in, particularly here. Like I, I, it's something that I'm particularly concerned about because I live in the panhandle Bay County. Um, we have a large scale land developer that is trying to bring in a hundred thousand people, 
Um, you know, they, it's, it's a Jimmy Buffett uh, branded uh, you know, you know, retirement center for, for active boomers. And like, and, and, and so like it's like a Florida thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's great. Um, and, but the problem is, is that, okay, well, if imagine if they attract a demographic, let's say 60, 40 uh, blue, well, all of a sudden that dramatically changes the political landscape here. I mean, we had, for example, we have someone that, that's, that, um, you know, it, it attends local city council meetings here in Panama city beach. Again, as, as you know, we've got the best flag in the country. It's a woman in a bikini out. Yeah, it's just great. Yeah. Personal favorite. And she wants to come in and she, she moved here four years ago. And she came in, come, comes in here, railing, oh, this is a sexist flag. We need to change it. Like, how dare you move somewhere and then try to change the, you know, the, our symbols that have been around decades. Right. And, and that's the danger. And, and I think we, uh, Jeff Dice, again, the president of the Mises Institute, he came. We had a, I, I run a group here called the Republican Roundtable. And he, he addressed this question of, you know, how do we proactively create structures that incentivize, uh, there you go. That, that incentivize the the right people, you know, people that have respect for that, that, that who, who, people whose values are aligned with the local population. How do we attract those people rather than you know, uh, uh, you know Seattle, you people from from Seattle and Portland, and, and people that want to you know, Californianize the Panhandle, right? And and so one of the things I'm trying to do is that you know, like again, Bay County was a plus fifty three county. Uh, I, I think it's important for our local leaders to, to look at things like naming things after President Trump, you know, considering the amount of loyalty. And in the state of Florida, I think there's like six or seven roads in the state of Florida already named after Barack Obama. Hmm. In the panhandle, we should have some roads named after Donald Trump. Amen. Um, you know, we should have, you know, we, we should be uh, repealing some of the, I mean, a few years ago, the, the, the Florida Republican Party made a huge miscalculation after the Parkland shooting and passed some really bad gun legislation. We should be repealing that. Um, we should be trying to do everything we can to attract people that are interested in cryptocurrency. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of little policy things that are signals to the people that have respect for the values that are making Florida so good right now. And and so again, you can proactively think about these policies because you, because when you attract these sort, even the symbolic ones, the symbolic ones have long-term substantive consequences by attracting the right people here and creating walls against people that are hostile and would, would undermine and subvert um, the, the issues that have made Florida great in the first place. Because the last thing we want is for Florida to really become what California was in the same way as this, this decay of a once great state. Yo, you're, you're absolutely right. And hopefully you guys will buck the trend that seems to have plagued not only just states, but just the West in general. It just seems to be the cyclical nature that's just completely counterintuitive. And, you know, it's that, that meme, you know, with the, with the Rome, with the Roman Empire, it's like good times create weak men. And then it just goes back and forth and back and forth. It's, it's a horrible cycle. But- and, 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 well, actually, one, one point of this, uh, uh, George, George is one of the best examples of it. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the, issue the, whole, George- yeah the South is changing. Georgia, North oh. Carolina, Virginia, don't become Virginia. Yeah. And, and the scary, and, and for, for example, Virginia, it's one of those states. Because the really, we talk about this in, in terms of rural versus urban divides, and I mm-hmm. think that's useful. Uh, but I think it's also important when, when you really kind of narrow down there, it comes down to uh, college education, particularly postgraduate levels. And so Virginia's uh, trending leftwards has coincided. And there's been a lot of things. To, like, it's correlated Virginia, with the, the rise but of But also a massive increase of the percentage of its population that has postgraduate degrees and college degrees. And so like, right. if Republicans, if Republican legislators throughout the country really want to get serious about this, this demographics issue, which in this case, again, is ed- education focused. Yep. We, you know, it's, you know, we, we can pull talk funding, about pull funding from these schools, stop yes. subsidizing the loans, guaranteeing the loans and just have that whole system collapse on its head. Because, you know, even mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, the, the education you were getting was very different. It's, yeah. it's not only that more people are getting the education is that the education is more indoctrination than it was, say, 40 years ago. And if they actually had to provide, you know, services on the, on a free market and they weren't just propped up by the feds and the state governments, then, you know, maybe their curriculum would start changing. But yeah. we're not going to see that unless, you know, of course, we pull the funding. Because like 20 years ago, the old the old hands and, and the and the university can you had tenure for that. They, they were like pre, you know, 60s, 70s revolution people, right? I mean, they, these are people that fought in World War II. Right. You know, once and now now the people that are the old establishment scholars in these universities are the products of the 60s and 70s. Right. 
And, and, and meanwhile, it's only gotten worse since then. Oh, God. Imagine and, what it's going to be in 20, 30 years. And, and the problem is, is that, is that the, the West has created so many institutions that produce a, a – Decay. A, a, a deca- I mean, our, our elites are awful. Like there was a stupid yeah. tweet by – it was a, a presidential historian. He does stuff at NBC. And oh, he didn't even, he didn't even know Lincoln about thing? Lincoln. He didn't even yeah. know about Lincoln no. executive Can order. Can you imagine yeah. Lincoln saying not nice things about the press? Like, like he arrested like over 300 journalists. Like that, someone, A lot of people have been talking about this lately. I saw a great – tweet from Cernovich the other day. I know Darren Beatty's been talking about it. Basically, our Beattie's, current... Beatty's fantastic. Beatty's fantastic. I definitely want him on once this podcast gets its legs. But um, the elites in the West mm-hmm. are so morally bankrupt. They're so intellectually bankrupt. And they're just propped up by these legacy institutions. But they have no real grassroots support. They have no real... Uh, uh, redeeming characteristics anymore. And people like Cernovich put out, and they said they b- basically broke down into three, that there's this old decaying elite, which is responsible for the decay in our society. Then there's the the, the great clueless masses who are just, you know, basically the proles, I guess, in Orwellian terms. And then there's this new elite of people who are engaged, who are, you know, reading and who are following what's going on and, you know, bettering themselves. And maybe if we can find a movement that ties the legitimate grievances of the masses with this new burgeoning elite, that's when we could start to see some political success. And Beattie talked about that as well. He said that a populist movement has no legs unless it can find some home with some sort of elites or aspiring elites who have capital, who have wealth, who have resources to prop up, you know, basically just this legitimate these legitimate grievances. And if you look throughout history, you know, a lot, you know, there's, there's countless examples throughout, you know, especially Western civilization where all these legitimate uprisings from the people, from the peasantry, whoever it is, were always squashed. And the only times they were successful, maybe, well, actually, maybe I was going to say the U S may be different, but they were always squashed unless they had support from the elites in the United States, for instance, the revolution, uh, they, they pointed out that we, there was actually an elite driven, Mm -hmm. Uh, revolution. I mean, the many of the, the great, you know, founding fathers were some of the wealthiest individuals in the United States. And they had some of the, you know, they were, they were landed, they had resources, obviously, there was popular support, but it had that elite support. Do you agree with that, con- that, that consensus, that, that idea? Yes, yeah, so I think it was one of the persons that I think is kind of had a, a good view on this is uh, Michael Malice said, I think it was a quote, an old quote of his, but he talks about how, and he's, he's both an anarchist and elitist. And he's an elitist because he does recognize that there is natural hierarchy, yep. but, but, he, he, but he's an anarchist and he recognizes that the current you know, structure, the current institution, politicized institutions that, that establish the hierarchy are, are arbitrary and crap. Yep. And like when he has a conversation- it's not based on merit. Yeah. And, and so like when you have a conversation with someone, you want to try to figure out, you know, like, are, you, are they, are they your, your superior, your inferior? And then, you know, because you can't just do it based on title. And that's, that's the truth. Like we have to have a system that rewards the best of us and, and recognizes their contributions because we are not all equal. And titles and, mean nothing anymore. Right. I mean, college degrees mean nothing. You can't use anyone's pedigree anymore to judge their level of education, their intellect, whatever. I mean, maybe 50, 60 years ago, those things were good as kind of like a heuristic to basically gauge people. But nowadays you can meet the dumbest people who went to top schools. You can meet the dumbest people with lofty titles in DC. It doesn't mean anything anymore because that hierarchy that, that, that you're talking about, that Michael Malice is talking about is completely broken from the top down. And that's what things I've always, like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a romantic at heart about, about the American experiment. And like, even you go back to the American revolution, one of the things that made it so great is that some of Washington's best generals were self-taught men. I mean, it was like, you know, people like Nathaniel Green and, and Harry Knox and Alexander Hamilton. Like these, these were not people that had long military careers before the, the war. I mean, they were largely self-taught um, you know, they, they read books about military strategy. They were just very capable and they outshined a lot of the veterans um, that had experienced service in the, serving in the Royal Army. And I can so those were the leaders that actually stood, stood up and, and yep. were able to, uh, to, to lead us to uh, victory against the British, against the greatest empire the world had ever known. And, but hierarchy is not a bad thing. Right. Maybe, maybe yeah. I'm going to go full neo-reactionary here. And say, we need hierarchy. It can't just be this massive mob. Hierarchy. I mean, yeah. yeah, of course. Populism is great. It's both a tactic. It's both as a way to funnel legitimate grievances, a way to channel uh, all this political energy. But you also need to recognize, you know, institutions. You need to recognize mm-hmm. some sort of hierarchy because you can't build a society just based on pure, you know, emotion and uh, the, the, the masses anger. You need something there that's kind Concrete. The problem is, is our institutions are so bankrupt right. and useless that we've we we can't we've gotten this this whole mentality of just being purely anti-institutional. 
uh, without any basis in it. It's more about the current institutions rather than institutionalism as a whole. Right. And, and, and absolutely correct. And, and I think that's one of the, the very encouraging things that we've seen on the right is that it's not simply a focus on tearing down institutions, but building up parallel new ones. ones right? Yeah. And, and, and again, like in terms of large scale consequences here, like like this is where, where I think something like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is so exciting because, it, we're, we're, you know, when when we have, I mean, the, the, what the Fed is doing is absolutely insane. Right. The, the exciting thing is that, you know, as more people recognize, again, the fact that there's consequences, the Fed creating 22% of its money base in 2020 alone, <laughs> at that same time, you have Bitcoin rise up. Um, you know, when, when, when YouTube and, and these, these big tech giants, you know, and they, they censor, they suppress, you know, anything that goes outside of the acceptable uh, index card of allowable opinion, you know, you create new things that pop up. Um, you know, this is an exciting time because not only can we focus on the failures of institu- of of these these you know completely eroded, corrupted institutions, but build up new ones. Yep. Because it, with, without that, then that's how that's how societies destroy, are, are destroyed. Is when when right. nothing is there to prop up because these these institutions. It's, it's like the old conservative adage, like you know, don't tear down a fence until you re- realize it was put up in the first place. We're, we're we're not just tearing down fences; we're building fences and then tearing down the rotten ones. Correct. That's, that's what's important. And again, yeah. the fact that we, we have so many talented people connected and, and recognizing, again, even if the ultimate, you know, there's some disagreements on what the ultimate end goal looks like, mm-hmm. we, we, people are, are recognizing, and it's, it's the new right. We need uh, change. Right. We, yeah. we, we recognize the left for what it is. And, and, and this is also where, where like political decentralization becomes so important because if, as long as we can agree that we can have, that we don't, and this is this is my bit one, my biggest my biggest issue with like the American nationalist movement going on is because they definitely they seem to think that oh well if we simply had like the right we had good government on with this 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 federal scale then we'd be okay because it, it would be reinforcing all these good conservative values. I think that's the wrong way of viewing it. America is not a unified nation; never was a unified nation. What we need is a government that recognizes that and be more, a lot more like Switzerland mm. um, than say Prussia, right? And I, I think that's, you know, those are lessons unique to American history that, again, we can have disagreements about what that end goal should look like so long as we can recognize our common, you know, our common. You know, uh, well, there's no national consensus anymore. I mean, all, no. everything that we used to hold dear and we used to find that this was some commonality, that there was no disagreements on, that's all gone out the window. I mean, we don't agree on anything. I mean, within the right, within the left, between the right, between the left. I mean, but I love the idea of both building new institutions and taking over existing institutions. I mean, you and me are doing the same thing. I mean, you're rising in your local party, the Republican Party. That's an institution. I took over a club mm-hmm. here that has a long storied history. It was previously a liberal Rockefeller institution. Now it's pretty much a populist institution. But even on the yeah, micro right level, yeah. But even on the micro level, if these continue to happen, um, it's slowly but surely you'll build a bedrock from which to actually build a feasible movement. Otherwise, it's going to collapse and it's just personality driven. Thank God, though, we do have a personality like Trump because he's certainly an accelerator. He's an accelerationist and he's pushed us with the Overton window in terms of his policies. And he's he's held the line in a lot of things that without him, things would have crumbled sooner. We would have been in a way worse position. So love him or hate him or or think he's been successful or not successful. I mean, he's obviously made some personnel decisions I I didn't really fancy. But him as an individual, I mean, even with this with this election. I mean, he, he would, anyone else would have conceded. It doesn't matter how great they were on issues. It doesn't matter how much I like them. If they were a Senator or governor, whoever, he was the only person I could conceivably see within the Republican party who would have stood his ground and said, this is stolen. We have to push back. That's a huge, uh, we need to take advantage of that. I w- and we have to recognize that that's great for everything else we're trying to do within the, the broader movement. Right. Yeah. That's why any libertarian out there that's like, they, they bash Trump because, Oh, well, his, his policies weren't libertarian. It's like, well, he's not a libertarian. He didn't run right. as libertarian. Right. So, but, so, but, and, but don't and, get involved and, and, in politics if you don't agree with sure. winning on the margins. Exactly. And, and, you're never going to get utopia overnight. It's about these small battles, these small victories, having some peace, no new wars, yeah. no new, no, no new troops on the ground. You yeah. know, uh, taunt with North Korea. Exactly. Uh, you know, marginal tax rates dropping. I mean, you know, these things are concrete policies that may not be ideal 100, percent but they 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 improve people's lives. Yeah. I mean, if I ran a business. And he came out and said, we're going to lower the corporate tax rate by 10%. That, that's a real thing for me. I mean, it's, I would obviously want it to be zero, but I'm still getting 10% back of my income. So I'm going to be happy for that. And now I can set the basis is at a lower level and we can push for the next 10%. But if you can't get that right. first victory, you're never going to get more victory. So, I mean, th- that's why the circle jerk of the neck beards never gets anywhere. Right. And, and again, I, I fully support your pardoning you know, Ed Snowden and Assange. Thanks. But like, if, if you talk, look, if you, you know, the thing that mattered more to your average business in your community, which is what you should be cared about, is is that tax cut or, yeah. or and, and all the de- deregulation yep. over 
you know, pardoning Assange and Stone. And again, that'd be a very which she may still do anyway. Which she still might do. Yeah. And, and what I also find it for, and the other thing about Trump is that it's not even just about the policies; it's the normalization of all these concepts. I, I have people that were, you know, Rick Santorum supporters here in Bay County who are now actively going on Facebook talking about abolishing the FBI because they saw what the <laughs> FBI did to Trump, and they recognize that the FBI can do that to Trump. They can do that to them. The Overton yeah. window, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. State, all of this sort yeah. of stuff. I mean, and again, now, now you have Rush Limbaugh talking about secession. Yeah. Because you have 40 plus percent of the country. Well, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about balkanization and decentralization because we, we can talk about it within a federal uh, structure. But if if tensions rise and they continue mm-hmm. to, to I mean, because we're not in a healthy place as a society. I mean, we are a divided country. I mean, anyone who's going to claim that the country is not completely divided and bankrupt and, and, and lost its footing is absolutely lying. I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's exceptions on a regional basis, but as a whole, I mean, we've never been more divided since maybe the civil war. I mean, do you, I mean, I know you would love to see maybe some kind of balkanization and stuff like that, but I mean, do you think we're heading in that direction? You know, it, it's always difficult to tell, you, you know, I, I think we're definitely trending towards political decentralization of some form. I mean, the thing is we've already seen it. Uh, uh, you know, I remember back in the, uh, you know, peak Tea Party days, and you know, you had some, you had like a, a, a what's this? A, a, a Tim Davis, a Tom Davis, who was a, a, a senator in South Carolina, state senator. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get the South Carolina uh, state government to proactively say that they would not enforce any gun control regulation. Um, that the Obama administration was trying to pass. So again, South Carolina has a long history of sending up to the feds. I mean, you know, that's that's historically has been their thing. Obama was extremely unpopular, and guns is one of the golden issues. Right. It should have been a slam dunk. It never got done. Florida, uh-huh. we tried to do something similar. Um, Republican states weren't willing to stand up really to Ob- the Obama administration. The closest they came were was not expanding Obamacare with Medicare. Yeah, you know, the Medicaid expansion right. to Obamacare, right? Um, well, the last four years, you've seen Democrat governors do just that against Trump, right? You know, that's when the sanctuary cities on immigration came in. That's when you saw you know, the COVID massively expanded. The they've, they've nullified. They've, they've yeah. pretty much de facto nullified certain policies from the Fed. And, and so what I'm interested in is now because of the last four years, because of the trumpeting of the GOP combined with what they've seen the left you know, the blue states of doing, will the GOP now be as aggressive against Biden should there not be a a a you know a, a legal solution to again what I, what it looks like a very uh, fragile election? Yep. Um, you know, assume or let's assuming that Biden is inaugurated, will the red states stand up for their citizens the same way that blue states had the last four years? And I, I think and I, I'm comfortable in Florida thinking that Ron DeSantis will. And, and and one of the things like my my party, I, my, my first day on the you know, right after the, my election to vice chairman, uh, I put. Uh, got a resolution passed that said that the Bay County Republican party will refuse to acknowledge Joe Biden as a legitimate <laughs> president, unless Trump concedes. And, and, and so we, we will now for, for four years, we will officially uh, describe any Democrat president. Let's assume, you know, we have to keep, keep into the, you know, Kamala Harris may, may end up there sooner rather than later, but any Democrat president, in the next four years will only be referred to it by the Bay County Republican party as president imposed. Wow, and my, my hope, that's very good. I like that. My hope is that we, we need other Republican parties standing up and doing this because, again, what that does is it sends a message. That, and, and particularly now, the, the threat to the Republican Party is not the left so much as it is the base believing that the party does not stand for them. And guess what? In Bay County, the people here know that the Republican Party cares more about uh, you know, standing up for what you know, their, their self-governance uh, than they are trying to make nice. Uh, with, with the Democrats and the media. And I would love the text of that resolution. I think the yeah, I would, love would love to use I, I it. I'm very happy with this one. Perfect. And then also, I mean, you, you were seeing some pushback already. I mean, what is it? 18 states now have signed on yeah. to this suit. That's I mean, that's fine. a great start. It's a third of the states. I mean, I would love, I mean, depending on how this goes, I mean, obviously I, I fully agree it's a fraudulent election. I still think there's some kind of a path for Trump and, you know, we're in unprecedented times. So who knows what's going to happen in the next well, two months. Anything can happen. <laughs> exactly. But I, even let's say in the worst case scenario, Biden gets in, I would love to see these states call a constitutional convention. I mean, yeah. I, I would support that. I would support any kind of radical move that could limit the, fe- the power of the feds that could uh, delegitimize them in any way. And we can have some states with some backbone pushing back. I mean, I think that's a 
very positive development, regardless of who's in charge, because, you know, we, we may have Trump for four, eight years, whatever it is, but he's not going to be there forever. And we're probably going to have someone else who's way worse in terms of policy. So if we can empower the states to regain some of the rights that they are, you know, that, 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 that they do come with being states within this union, I think that's a positive development and libertarians should recognize that. And, and, and again, Darren Beatty has been one of the best people out there paneling the painting this drum is that the, the biggest threat to American liberty is not people in a tent in the Middle East, not even China, as, as bad as China is. China, yeah. It's pretty bad. It, it's, 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 they're in America. It's it, domestic. It's, it's domestic. domestic. It's, yeah. it's corporate giants that, again, that have no problem trying. They, and, and what's interesting, you know, like the, the Democratic Party, you know, elites have been pining for years for America to be more like China. And that's, that's exactly what they want. They want one party role. They want to, to be able to, to outset all the censorship to, to big tech, all that. The, the threat to American liberty is domestic. And yep. now, and, and again, I, I think that six years ago, your average Republican voter thought ISIS was a bigger threat uh, than D.C. Now, it's I think flipped. that's not the case. And again, that, these, are the, you know, these are the issues that can't, you know, Trump going away doesn't change it. And again, I can't wait. I mean, if, if, if we have four years of Donald Trump dunking on Biden on a daily basis, as his administration is an absolute failure, Biden has, has even managed to to underserve my own expectations for him. Like I thought he was going to throw a bone out to the left and bring in like Bernie Sanders as a labor secretary. You know, for one, I thought he'd want Bernie Sanders out of the Senate. I mean, he's he's, all, he's he's actively alienating a political left that has gotten used to non political action. Yeah, and so I, you're saying, in, in Portland, for example, I mean, you have you have the anti vol activists in Portland that are still on the streets. For one, that, that Portland mayoral election doesn't get enough interest. I mean, the fact killer won over that in spite of everything is, is actually really fascinating. Mm. But they're still in the streets in Portland. And you saw him grow a backbone now. Now he's like, oh, we're sending the police. We're shutting down these camps. We're shutting yeah, down this mandate, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there there is some kind of internal schism brewing on the left. And, you know, we're, if you could see it in a place like Portland, which is about as close to the lion's dead of leftism in this country. I mean, it makes Greenwich Village look like a right-wing utopia. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just insane. Um, but that's another that's another example of decentralization. I never thought in the United States we would have we would have autonomous communes like when it's <laughs> paris and circa 1880 i yeah. mean it's insane it's absolutely insane but um this has been fascinating i definitely want you on again because this has been a great discussion we covered a lot of ground here i want to pass off the last words to you also use the time uh to just plug in where people can follow you mises etc everything you're doing and i hope you can come back on again though yeah yeah this has been great um, again you can follow me on twitter at, at tho bishop uh, t-h-o-b-s-h-o-p you can find mises m-i-s-e-s dot org uh, if you if you want a free economics book, uh, the best one ever published, uh, Economics in One Lesson, it's at Mises.org one lesson. One lesson. Totally free, shipping, all that, totally free. Um, but you know, my, my hat's off to you and Vish and the New York uh, City Young Republican Club. You know, it, it's amazing. There's not a libertarian party organization out there that is living the principle more than your organization has. And the fact that you guys are able to do it where you're at – you are setting an example, and this is the tone that if, if when we restore America, it is going to be uh, be people like you and Vish you know, doing out there and leading. So again, my hats off to you. This is fun. I look forward to joining you in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I can vouch for economics in one lesson, one of the most life-changing books I've ever read. If I ever ran a right-wing junta, that would be mandated reading in our state schools. But anyway, guys, tune in. We'll have another episode soon. Thank you all uh, for joining the WaxCast. Thank <laughs> you.